see you with us, and thank you to our musicians and all who have helped to make this night so special. So we pause this evening for just a moment to make sense of the lessons and carols that we've heard. I want to draw your attention to a line from T.S. Eliot. But first, a disclaimer, I'm a molecular biologist by training, my dad's an engineer. Um, what do I know about poetry? I can't really tell Dr. Seuss from Dante, really, so if I get Elliot wrong, please don't blame God. <laughs> so, Elliot, anyways, the great Anglican poet of the 20th century, has this line, In my beginning is my end. In my beginning is my end. And here's how he came to write it. I think the story is really interesting. In his 30s, late 20s, early 30s, he really rose to fame, particularly after publishing his poem, The Wasteland. And then, as he continued to age, his, his success got the better of him. And he, he had a harder and harder time writing poetry. At his 50th birthday, the well had gone completely dry. He hadn't written a thing for nearly four years. He'd been in the slump for so long, producing so little, he'd been in the despair of ever writing poetry again. After great promise as a young man, he felt as if all his creativity had been spent. So he made a pilgrimage of sorts. He went from the city of London, where he was living at the time, down to a little village called East Coker, a small English village which would have been unremarkable had it not been for this one thing. Eliot's ancestors had once lived there before they had immigrated to America in the 17th century. It was there in humble East Coker that Eliot wrote, In my beginning is my end. In my beginning is my end. It's not a very cheery thought for a holiday service, is it? It's probably something that Scrooge might say, In my beginning is my end. <laughs> East Coker's old buildings showed their age. They were crumbling. The tombstones were all crooked this way and that. The town had seen better days, just like Elliot in middle age. And what he saw all around him was emblematic of the way that he felt inside. Why was he suffering writer's block after rising to fame? Because he too had once been full of vitality, but now he also was run down, just like East Cobra, the place where he, his ancestors were from. I get a uh, similar feeling when I go back to the place where I come from, a place in rural Florida called Avon Park. It has a great name, but maybe not such a great history. It began with great promise. It was settled in the 19th century by immigrants from England, from Stratford upon Avon who came with great hope 
life in Florida today. It's not much more than a stoplight with a Dollar General, a 7-Eleven, and a Taco Bell. When I'm feeling discouraged, when the bruises and the scars of another year really start to get me down, when my creativity feels all dried up, I can really sympathize with Elliot. No matter where one might go to make a fresh start, whether moving to the big city of London or the big city of Washington, D.C., you can't escape the fate of East Coker or Avon Park, for I fear that in my beginning is my end. I wonder if you feel it too. Do you think this way sometimes about your current state or the future that's to come? Put it another way, do you fear that your destiny has already been predetermined to one degree or another? Especially here in the West, life often feels like this tug of war between hope and determinism. As Americans, you know, we believe that we can do anything. We believe in the power of positive thinking. We tell ourselves and our kids that we can grow up to be or do anything that we desire. Yet there are always these dark clouds on the horizon, dark clouds of fate, right? Dark clouds of determinism. Just as the oak tree's whole life is encoded in the acorn, so also I fear that my life is encoded in the genes that have been passed down to me, or encoded in the place where I'm from, or determined by my family of origin. And every disappointment, every failure serves only to confirm these fears. Oh yeah, I thought I would be able to break free from Avon Park, but it turns out um, I'm right back where I'm from. The more you try to escape it, the more you find that your beginning will be your end. There's hope though, there's hope in the old story that we've heard tonight in the lessons. It offers both an explanation and a remedy for such a gloomy fate. First, the explanation. Tonight's story traces our common problem to the beginning of human history, to an infection that is more theological than biological. In the beginning, there was a simple and benevolent hierarchy. God cared for humanity, and humanity in turn cared for the other creatures. So if you long for greater authority and dignity in your life, you're not crazy. You were made for such a thing. God designed you to rule under him. God made you in his image. He called you to serve him in caring for the world that he made. But instead of honoring and loving God, our ancestors rebelled against him. And ever since then, instead of perfectly reflecting God's image, as we were made to, made to be, we behave more like the animals that we were meant to rule. As we heard in the first lesson, we are the dust, and the dust we shall return, or as Eliot might say, in my beginning is my end. Thankfully, tonight's story offers more than just an explanation for our gloomy fate. It also offers a remedy, which is spelled out in much greater detail in the Bible, but tonight we get the synopsis. 
In the same way that God provided to Abraham a ram in the thicket, just in the nick of time, God would also provide all creation with a Savior King. Isaiah, we heard, promised the Messiah would come to rule over us, while also himself delighting in God, making a new beginning for humanity as a new man. Rebellion against God would come to an end, giving way to alignment and unity with God, under God, such that there will be perfect peace. Isaiah describes it, no more vicious attacks from wild animals, be they wolves or leopards, bears or lions, or in our day, carjackers or school shooters, or anything else that we might be afraid of, because the Messiah will come to rule, and the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Christmas marks the beginning of the end of this ancient story. Some 700 years after Isaiah's promises, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It may have once been royal, David's royal city, as we like to see, but by the time Jesus got there, it was more like Avon Park, kind of run down, a one-stop light town. Jesus wasn't born in a palace, but in the sheep pen together with all the animals. It was a terrible place to start, particularly if Elliot is right about one's beginning, determining one's end. Think about it. And it didn't get much better because Jesus was hunted like an animal for the rest of his life, right? From the very beginning, he was hunted by crazy King Herod, as we heard in the story, who wanted to find out from the wise men sneakily where the baby was so that he could go and worship him with his knife. Right? And then from that point on, uh, though Jesus and his family escaped, they were on the run. You know, and when we find him again as an adult, he is still being chased by other enemies, the religious authorities who had fought like cats and dogs, all of their existence suddenly come together in unity in order to put Jesus to death. And then finally, it is the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, who does this dirty deed. He has him tortured. And then put to death on the same hilltop where God once provided a ram as a substitute for Abraham. This time God did not provide a sacrificial animal as a substitute. He provided his son as a substitute. Jesus was the substitute. He was the sacrificial lamb in our stead. And so we find that in Jesus' beginning, there amongst the sheep was his end. And why? To free us from our animal fate. Back to T.S. Eliot. As it turns out, it was through this pilgrimage back to East Coker that he overcame his fears and his creativity returned to him. His new poem started with this line, In my beginning is my end. And then the words began to flow once more. And over the course of that poem, Eliot 
first describes the fate of sinful humanity destined for decay in great detail. And then, he offers the only true remedy, namely Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. And finally, in the end of the poem, Eliot concludes that Jesus' sacrifice has turned his own life circumstances upside down. Listen to how he concludes. Whereas in the beginning, he said, in the beginning is my end. After encountering Jesus, he says, in my end is my beginning. In my end is my beginning. I love this because it captures the hope of faith in Jesus Christ. Without him, we become slaves to fear because we are all doomed from the start. And the longer we try to live in rebellion against God, the more we discover the absolute futility of going it alone. It's only when we come to our own end, to the end of all efforts to try to save ourselves, that we discover a fresh start in Jesus. In our end is our beginning. And thankfully Jesus' death wasn't his end either, was it? Like a seed buried in the ground, Jesus rose again from the dead, victorious over every enemy, and the rightful heir to the throne that our first parents abdicated. His resurrection broke the spell, enabling us to live obediently and faithfully under God, and to never know another day apart from Him. In a moment, we're going to hear the ninth and final lesson. And the Apostle John will tell it like it is. When Jesus came to his own, his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I'm so grateful for this life-changing gift. And I know many of you are as well. It means that I am no longer destined for dust. That is not my end. Because of Jesus, all my regrets and bruises and scars aren't the end of my story. Through his death and resurrection, I am no longer a slave to fear. For I am a child of God. In my end is my beginning. And for all who receive him, for all who believe in his name, 